Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. I often maintain that if it was anyone else but Ross Albrecht and, um, you know, the Dread Pirate Roberts and Silk Road that started off the, the darknet markets, they would never have become what they did today. This is Politico Tech. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. If you didn't catch our first episode, stop what you're doing, subscribe, and start there. You'll hear how darknet cybercrime is an emerging threat to the security of civilians, the economy, and even governments. Today I'm taking you deeper into this world, showing you its beginnings, and then the wide expanse of interlocking platforms and networks that make cybercrime possible. I was a lawyer in both Australia here and in London. Eileen Ormsby is a lawyer and true crime author. Um, I was in London being a funds management lawyer when the global financial crisis hit and it gave me a bit of um, an identity crisis, um, existential crisis, just thinking that, um, you know, I'm, I'm working for the bad guys while all these people are losing their homes. And so I came back to Australia and I thought, oh, what have I always wanted to do? Well, I've always wanted to write. She chronicled the rise and fall of some of the biggest English-speaking darknet marketplaces, including the infamous Silk Road the world's very first darknet marketplace. Eileen recalls the Silk Road days with something that sounds like nostalgia? And the main reason for that was because it was run in that ethical way. It was run as if it was this revolution. It was run as though, you know, people believed that they were part of something special, part of something big, um, you know, part of something that was going to change the landscape. And the owner of the, the site was not just in it for the money. I mean, obviously he made a massive amount of money but that's not why he was he was in there for he really was you know uh, had this thought experiment going and and kept it going and and ran it very very customer centric so it ran almost from the outside it was really smooth for two and a half years and people suddenly realized that they were getting these high quality drugs delivered directly to their door this great customer service and this is what it could be like silk road wasn't just a means of profit for its founder, Ross Albright. To him and many others, Silk Road was a techno-libertarian revolution. The cybercrime underworld is full of big personalities and big ideas. And contrary to popular belief, this underworld is not that big. It's a smaller club than you might realize. So, I'm exploring who the cybercrime players actually are in the shadowy online space. Come walk with me, won't you? International law. Ransomware operators laundered money. Privacy and anonymity are not bad. We've observed more and more threat actors moving into that. The major players behind the darknet market. The cyber criminals engaging in illicit activity. Picture this. It's October 2013. A 29-year-old Ross Albright has just been arrested at the Glen Park branch of the San Francisco Public Library. It's kind of wild. The still unidentified Satoshi Nakamoto had published the white paper that introduced Bitcoin to the world exactly four years and 11 months prior. That's how much time it took for Albright to build a $1.2 billion dark web empire that ran entirely on Bitcoin. Here's Nicholas Kristen, a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. He's been tracking these people since the beginning. 
And Silk Road was actually, you know, very much uh, on the radar of quote-unquote policymakers because Chuck Schumer, uh, of all people, had called for it to be taken down, right? Other markets swooped in to fill the Silk Road-shaped void. Soon there was a new market leader, Alphabet, established late in 2014. And less than three years later, Alphabet was 10 times bigger than Silk Road, according to the FBI's estimate. Alphabet encouraged, but did not mandate, the use of an even more secure cryptocurrency, Monero. As a decentralized cryptocurrency, Monero transfers are much harder to track than Bitcoin. Okay, you need to understand Monero to understand how these markets are getting more secure. 1. Bitcoin transactions are linked to what is called a wallet. Transactions between Bitcoin wallets are visible on a public ledger. So a transfer of 35 Bitcoin from Digibunny9000's wallet to Anonymous Joe's wallet is clear to the public. 2. Bitcoin's ledger is fixed, while Monero's ledger is constantly shifting and amorphous, thus making the coin even harder to track. All of this means is that it's extremely hard to track where Monero travels. Also, there are virtually no restrictive regulations that apply to Monero. And while federal regulators puzzle out how to sanction blockchain technologies, in August, Monero announced encryption updates to improve user anonymity. But platform OPSEC was not enough to protect one of Alphabet's core administrators, Alexander Kazez. At the height of Alphabet's popularity, Kazez made a series of personal OPSEC mistakes, exposing his identity. Operation Bayonet, a multinational law enforcement operation, pounced immediately. They shut Alphabet down and arrested Kazez in Thailand. He was found dead in his cell weeks later. Uh, the leader of uh, Alphabet, or the person who built Alphabet, was a freelance web developer that happened to have a couple of houses and a couple of Lamborghini. Nicholas Kristen again. That type of income does not match with their professional status, at least not with their public professional status. That still gives you clues as to what is happening. And so this is something that in security we call side channels, meaning the main channel may be obfuscated, but you still have information leaking uh, out of it. And that's pretty hard to address. Kristen studies online crime modeling, security economics, and cryptocurrency. The reason it's so difficult for governments to outlaw a particular cryptocurrency and expect that move to shut down cybercriminal operations for good is simply this. The technological knowledge behind these financial instruments already exists. And that's before law enforcement can even wrap their heads around it. To some extent, we haven't seen a very strong appetite from government to, you know, make Zcash illegal or make Monero illegal. Zcash, that's another cryptocurrency with enhanced privacy features. We haven't seen that because, first of all, it's very hard to do. How do you make those things illegal? I mean, at some level, it's basically making math illegal. But even if you made all of this illegal, nothing precludes anybody from just developing the project open source and be outside of the jurisdiction where it's banned. Uh, so it's pretty hard to make those things illegal. And at the same time, they are not necessarily a silver bullet. So, no silver bullets. After the Alphabet bust, its displaced users, both buyers and vendors, flocked to a marketplace called Hansa. At the time, Hansa was the third largest darknet market. 
That meant very little for its security, though, because the Dutch police had taken Hansa over and they were secretly running it. Hansa fell in 2017. So essentially in 2017, uh, there was sort of a, a large operation that took down a couple of darknet marketplaces, including Alpha Bay and Hansa. And on these operations, the Dutch authorities were quite involved in the work. And a lot of this also ran through Europe's law enforcement agency called Europol. Lawrence Serulis is a political Europe reporter. He actually covered that entire audacious Dutch law enforcement operation. But the whack-a-mole continued. Other markets rose and fell, like Dream Market. After a few years, one distinguished itself for a better operational security and a smoother customer experience. This one was called the White House Market. Among other OPSEC updates, it mandated the use of PGP encryptions in all communications. That kind of set the bar for other marketplaces going forward. White House eventually retired. Peacefully. And surprise. One of Alphabay's old administrators, known only as the Snake, revived Alphabay. See, rise and fall has almost been a cyclical affair for darknet markets over the years. Fun stuff. And that's just the English-speaking darknet market space. Wait till you hear about the Russian-language darknet community. The two communities have historically remained separate. When the Russian-speaking Hydra market fell in April 2022... The rebooted Alpha Bay got to reclaim the title of world's biggest darknet market. Still, Alpha Bay prohibits any activity affecting Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Armenia, or Kyrgyzstan. Because those guys aren't messing around. There are threat actors who operate in other countries and languages as well, of course, including the Chinese. But it's hard to get visibility into non-English-speaking forums if you're not monitoring the landscape constantly. To get this visibility, I'll need help from an expert who's been embedded in Russian-language darknet spaces far longer than I have. First of all, as a little background for, because I know I know that you know, but, but others might not be aware of how the February invasion impacted this space. That's Andrash Todd Sifra, a senior analyst at Flashpoint and a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. He tracks Russian and European cybercrime, illicit communities, and security issues. Russia's war on Ukraine became a kind of dividing point on the darknet. It prompted some cybercriminal groups, not all of them, not nearly all of them, but uh, prompted some to take sides, uh, Russia or Ukraine. But most of the hacktivist groups that initially emerged in the wake of the invasion were pro-Ukrainian. There were some groups with explicit links to cybercriminals or cybercriminal groups themselves that positioned themselves as pro-Kremlin. Killnet was one of these groups. It started up as a, uh, as a DDoS for hire group earlier. And almost overnight, it transformed itself into a hacktivist collective. And it's difficult to see whether this was whether they thought that this was good business, um, or they were actually ideologically motivated. But the change was very quick. Uh, we also had um, ransomware groups like Conti, uh, most famously probably, who declared themselves in favor of Russia's war efforts. It didn't really work out for Conti because uh, it caused a rift in the collective. Then there's Conti. 
Conti is a cybercrime group responsible for dozens of international attacks on different public and private entities in 2022 alone. On March 1st, just days after Russia began its war in Ukraine, a member of the group leaked years of critical internal chat logs to the public. The pro-Ukraine informant who leaked the chat logs said they did so because the gang had, quote-unquote, lost all their shit for supporting the Russian invasion. And Conti's operations just keep going beyond Hydra. In the past years, especially prior to the uh, 2022 invasion, cross-border cybercrime was a very lucrative form of cybercrime in the Russian-speaking cyberspace. There were Russian-speaking cybercriminals in Ukraine that worked with Russian-speaking cybercriminals in Russia or in Belarus. And in many cases, being in Ukraine meant that they were able to, for instance, access uh, financial services that the cybercriminals based in Russia couldn't. They had hosting providers that were in Ukraine that was more convenient and probably less suspicious probably than, uh, than being hosted in Russia. These corporations were put on the strain first by Ukraine's sort of turn away from Russia, especially after 2019, when law enforcement, the Ukrainian law enforcement started uh, more closely cooperating with Western law enforcement. And there were busts of uh, cyber criminals, most notably ransomware operators, but not only. Before the war, in a time when cross-border operations between various Eastern European countries didn't seem so far-fetched, there was a lot of money to be made as a ransomware developer in that region. There was increasingly a sense that these two cyber undergrounds that were that, that almost seamlessly cooperated in the past years uh, were now under strain because uh, of the war, because uh, Ukraine was no longer a safe space for Russian-speaking cyber criminals or cyber criminals in general. And the war then added a sort of an ideological element to this. But this sort of ideological strife that we see emerging in the uh, in Kilnet, in, in the Conti uh, declarations, and most recently in the War of the Marketplaces, probably just amplified already existing rifts. This is not a done deal yet, because most of these cybercriminals uh, remain financially motivated. The growing fissure in the darknet landscape is that there's the markets that just want to sell their drugs, their ransomware, their stolen data, and get on with the money-making without any further purpose. They care about making money, and they don't really care about politics. And then there's the entities that have started to serve a more distinct purpose as agents of cyber warfare. Whether this is going to uh, sort of solidify into a rift that defines this space in the longer term. And if we see two separate big darknet markets that offer various cybercrime resources uh, and money laundering resources and so on, and then drugs, and those two marketplaces and their sellers and their buyers explicitly do not trust each other, not because one of them is Ukrainian and the other one is Russian, uh, but because they fear that the other country's security agencies are behind those marketplaces, then there's going to make cooperation between them very difficult in the longer term. Andrash Totsifra 
is one of the few people who can tell me what it's like to be in the room with Eastern European cybercrime actors. Even among shadowy cybercriminals, I'd say they're some of the shadiest of them all. But next time, I'm taking you stateside. All right, so are we identifying the top individuals before we take it down? And are we doing a concerted effort across the board to be able to do it so that the top vendors on a marketplace aren't like, all right, well, I'm going to go make my own marketplace now because this one was taken down. I'll meet people who've been in the U.S. fight against cybercrime, who know firsthand what the domestic offensive has looked like, how it's changed and what gaps exist in the fight. So, subscribe wherever you're listening right now. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. Thanks for tuning in.